Hello and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis. And today we are with Sarah Wade, who is the museum manager at Admiralty House and third time participant on the Living Heritage podcast. Welcome back, Sarah. Oh, thanks for having me again. <laughs> again. We can't get enough of you, Sarah Wade. And, and I also cannot get enough <laughs> of this wonderful podcast. Thank you. Um, it's gonna I'm going to update my LinkedIn to uh, include that I am now co-host, <laughs> official co-host of the Living Heritage Podcast. Yes, you do that. Uh, all those people who use LinkedIn, I don't know who they are. Um, my mom. Your mom? Great. Even though she's retired, she who keeps is, updating. Who is one of your greatest volunteers, I think. Yes. How much has your mom done for this coming exhibit that's uh, that's coming up very soon? Um, So much. She is uh, currently, and like random things from like really big things to really small things. Uh, we have black cats that have its own little interesting connection to the exhibit. And yesterday she was at Fabricville getting fabric <laughs> to tie little scarves around their necks. <laughs> God it sounds Lord. very odd, but I can guarantee you it is connected to the exhibit <laughs> and the story we're sharing. And so she's been sending me pictures of these cats with various scarfs on, uh, looking for my opinion. And uh, each one, she's like, look at Twinkle Toes. He looks so proud. <laughs> so we're getting I, we're getting way ahead of ourselves here. <laughs> way ahead. Uh, so now, uh, that shout out to your mom. Uh, thank you for that. Now we're going to talk about the exhibit, which is called... Field to Flight. Now, this is in commemoration uh, of the 100-year anniversary of the transatlantic air race and Mount Pearl's connection to that story and uh, HM Wireless Station. For people who aren't familiar with Admiralty House, uh, tell us a little bit about the building and its history. So Admiralty House is located in the former top-secret wireless station, HM Wireless Station, Mount Pearl, and that was set to open by the British Admiralty. And the building is constructed in a Marconi wireless telegraph station, and there were 13 of those uh, in the world, and this is the only one left remaining. And when you go to Admiralty House Communications Museum, inside you'll see the original beams that have been standing since the building was constructed in 1914. And you'll also see Waddle and Dobb technique, <clears throat> which was used to cut down on uh, on noise because there was heavy machines in there and it was also the living quarters for the Newfoundland Royal Naval Reserve and the Royal Naval Reservists Uh, and they were there to decode any German naval transmissions and uh, and help any ships in distress during the First World War. Now we're a hundred years into now this uh, this story of the transatlantic air race Newfoundland was con- central to this because it is the closest land point to uh to the old country um so what is mount pearl's connection specifically to the air race so when the air race was called it was originally called actually in 1913 but with the breakout of the first world war they postponed it and 3 days after the armistice was signed then um, teams, there was 11 teams that showed interest, and four of them came to Newfoundland. So the four different teams, one team got land down in Kitty Vitty, another team got land in Harbor Grace by the old courthouse. Uh, Al Cockham Brown, who went on to be the successful winners of this transatlantic air race, they got land from Charles Lester. And Charles Lester is the son of John Lester, and John Lester came over with James Pearl. So he owned that land uh, where they took off from St. John's. 
And Hawker and Grieve actually got land. They rented it from Andrew Glenn Denning in Mount Pearl. Yeah, and I think there's some confusion maybe about uh, Lester's because yes. I think I think people today, when we hear Lester's Field, a lot of people assume incorrectly that they're talking about the Lester's Farm on Brookfield Road, but that that is not the location where Alcock and Brown took off from. No, no, it was uh, further down, so uh, it was closer around Black Marsh Road area. Right, uh, is kind of around where Mundy Pond is today, like Mundy Pond, the Cornwell Avenue. Yeah. So now uh, the the wireless station there played a, a role in in the the race and and the the flights. So who was in contact with whom from that from that facility? So in each of the teams, there'd be like a pilot and a navigator. So for the Vickers Vimy plane, uh, Alcock was the pilot and Brown was the navigator, and he had quite a fascination in uh, wireless technology. And they were staying at the Cochrane Hotel. And while staying at the Cochrane Hotel in St. John's, he would actually go up to the rooftop and with the permission, the help of HM Wireless Station Mount Pearl, he was testing uh, wavelengths and testing his equipment. And he actually visited HM Wireless Station uh, in 1919. And when Alcock and Brown took off from the farmland, Lester farmland in St. John's, they actually communicated with HM Wireless Station. <clears throat> we have the navigational log. Uh, the copy of that on display. And in the navigational log, you'll see that uh, the Vickers Vimy plane had communicated with BZM, our call sign. Right. Now, the you said there were four teams that came here. So there was Alcock and Brown, who went on to win, um, Hawker and Greaves, who had the land in uh, Mount Pearl. Yep. And then was was one of them a, 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 a dirigible? There was one that was a, a there was a balloon flight at, at some yeah. point that, that didn't go very well. Yeah, there was one um, airship, the C-5, and it came into Kitty Vitty. And that was it was an american team and when they were there they got off for lunch and they had a couple of people guarding the airship and then a gust came and it blew away <laughs> it just went out to sea somewhere i just yeah. picture the money just floating away <laughs> so this exhibit um uh, has kind of it, it tells this story of the connection to mount pearl and the wireless station but you also have this other interesting local component that mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about before you started to do the research on this about uh, a local, I guess, socialite who was uh, very interested in in the events of the day. Do you want to tell yep. tell the, that story? Yeah. So local connections were super important when we were doing this exhibit. We, you know, as we discussed, we want to share our connection to Hawker Grieve and Alcock and Brown. Uh, and when I had applied to the Cultural Economic Development Program, that was the whole story we were sharing in our exhibit, and we were going to focus on the full race. Uh, but then uh, my contact, Lucy Alway, asked me if I had ever chatted with Colleen Quigley with uh, Memorial Libraries, Archives, and Special Collections. And as I started chatting with Colleen, found out that in their collection, they have this wonderful scrapbook by Margaret Carter. Uh, she went on to become a Baird, Margaret Baird, but in 1919, she was a Margaret Carter. And her grandfather was Sir Frederick Carter, who was once Prime Minister of Newfoundland. And they lived in a wonderful home, uh, Hawthorne Dell, which is uh, around where the Avalon Mall is today. And because of her brother, Cyril, he was fascinated with the possibility of airmail uh, going on these planes. And so they would take off in their car and go 
like become friends with all these pilots and they would travel to all of the aerodromes which is the term that was used uh because in 1919 there was no planes ever flown here before so they would go visit these aerodromes become friends with the pilots and they would hang out with them and sometimes even drive the pilots around uh get to know the mechanics that came with the teams as well for the vickers vimy team there was about 11 mechanics with them so they would hang out they'd have lunch together uh and she documented all this with her camera and recorded all in a scrapbook and uh she labels everything in her scrapbook, so it's wonderful, and she tells you where they are and, and who she was with, and she even had them autograph some of the photos. <clears throat> and uh, another fascinating thing is that she became such good friends with Alcock and Brown, uh, she packed them a lunch before they left on June 14th, 1919, and they ate that lunch while flying across the Atlantic for the first plane to fly nonstop across the Atlantic. And when they crash landed uh, near Clifton, Ireland, they folded up the handkerchief, they signed and dated it and sent it back to Margaret in the mail. And so in our exhibit, Field of Flight, we're going to be having that uh, silk cloth and her scrapbook on display that's all on loan from Archives and Special Collections Memorial Libraries. Yeah. You've been in touch with some of the Carter family as well in, in preparing for this exhibit. Yeah, they've been uh, wonderful to deal with. So uh, we interviewed them to get information on Margaret to find out what she was like as a person. Uh, we've had a lot of research done looking through the Digital Archive Initiative, reading newspaper clips about her, and just trying to find out as much as we can. So part of the exhibit is going to be told in, told in her perspective of what she thought about the race and her connection uh, as the events unfolded. And, uh, and but with the exception of probably three photos, every photo in our exhibit panels are from Margaret's scrapbook. And so a fun little interactive that we made as well is the scrapbook is going to be on display, but it's very fragile, so it's going to be in a closed case. But we've actually uh, uh, reproduced two copies of the scrapbook that people can sit down and flip through and uh, and see all her comments and all the wonderful photos she took of Hawker and Grieve in Mount Pearl and of Alcock and Brown on uh, the Lester's field that they had rented in St. John's. Yeah, it's an interesting story and it's an interesting perspective on history. You know, sometimes I think uh, some of these stories, we really focus on the men. You know, we focus on Alcock and Brown. We, we focus on the, the pilots. And here's this kind of interesting young woman who, who, uh, left this really fascinating historical document. And I've seen some of the photographs and the photographs are fabulous, you know, and there's, and there's great photographs of her too, that she seemed like, she seemed like quite of an interesting mm -hmm. woman. I know there's great photos of her in big fur coats and dramatic hats and yeah. things like that. I love the photos. And, you know, 1919, it was May and the weather was miserable. But here she is, like, up to her knees in mud with her fur coat on, <laughs> uh, documenting all this and becoming friends. And, and all the interviews that were done with her family, the message was the same. She was a kind, she was a generous woman, um, you know, she had everything at her fingertips, but none of it fazed her. She was just a good person uh, who was interested in this. And at the time, Mount Pearl, you couldn't just hop on Pitts Memorial and head on out to Mount Pearl in 1919. It was a bit of a trek. Uh, we were reading a newspaper article the other day that uh, Hawker, and this is something you don't typically think about, but Hawker and Grieve didn't have as many 
skimmers, and that was the term used for the spectators, a Newfoundland word, uh, they didn't have as many skimmers because people couldn't afford to make their way out to Mount Pearl to see that team take off. So teams like the Martin side um, and Hanley Page and even the Vickers Vimy, they had more of a showing and more of interest to people around the fields because people could easily access those uh, those fields. Yeah, townies to could walk to those Yeah, sites, they could yeah. walk to the sites to see. But Hawker and Grieve, uh, Hawker was almost like a celebrity in uh, London at the time. He was basically like a daredevil, you know, flying in 1919 uh, on these fields outside London, uh, doing all these tests and... Uh, and spinning in his planes and stuff like that. So, and then for him to come here, he was a big deal. But I guess where they were located, they didn't have as many people that could uh, get out there. So, what what happened to the flight that took off from Mount Pearl? So, Hawker and Grieve took off on May eighteenth, which will be a hundred years next week. And they had a really difficult time because of the weather. The weather in 1919 was absolutely horrible. And we're actually going to have a graph in our exhibit because it's laughable seeing the amount of rainfall in 1918 in comparison to 1919. So every day they were just waiting for good weather and just like today woke up and there's snow outside. Uh, so they were encountering the same problems 100 years ago. And May 18th, everything was looking good and they, uh, you know, they made their assessments and they packed up and they got in their Sopwith plane and they took off from the farmland, Glendenning farmland. And uh, as they were flying, they soon as they took off, they went through a bank of fog, which is a typical site for Newfoundland. And soon as they cleared that, it was fine. But until around 10 p.m., that's when it started getting really bad weather. And all throughout the night, they were dealing with uh, heavy wind, heavy fog, heavy clouds, and rain. By the morning, they didn't know if they could uh, go on much longer. They found shipping lanes, and they managed to find a ship, the uh, SS Mary. They circled around the Mary three times, and they signaled, uh, had sent off an SOS signal, and then they crash-landed into the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, the Mary was able to help rescue them. The thing with the Mary is that it didn't actually have communications on the ship, so they weren't able to tell anyone that they rescued Hawker and Grieve. So for a few days, everyone thought the worst. Uh, they didn't know what happened to them, where they was, and the most likely assumption was that they died. So when a few days later, the Mary hauls into port and they communicated with the with team on land letting them know using international signal flags that they had a team and they had a rescue and they reported back in the flag saying is it hawker and they wrote back in the flags yes and so that's quite fascinating just people were just so happy that uh, they lived they were able to get uh, i think five thousand pounds by from lord northcliffe who was the one who issued the race from the daily mail in the UK and uh, just for, you know, making it that far and surviving. And I think, you know, to get in a plane and take off from Newfoundland where there's no actual proper uh, places to take off for a plane compared to what they're used to and then try to make your way nonstop across the Atlantic, fail, but still survive, I think is an amazing story of determination 
and uh, perseverance. So I think it's incredible. Yeah. You're finding a little, lot of interesting little stories. You know, I think yes. people sort of have a general idea of what happened, and certainly Alcock and Brown get a lot of the attention. But you're finding out some really interesting uh, interesting little things. Now, I want to go back to your mom then, yes. uh, sewing these little bandanas for the, the toy cats. Uh, tell me the story of Twinkle Toes. Twinkle Toes. So, the... Alcock and Brown had, uh, they joked, the first tra- nonstop transatlantic passengers. And they were two black plush cats. Uh, one was Twinkle Toes, which was belonged to Brown. And uh, Lucky Jim was belonged to Alcock. <laughs> and one of these cats, Twinkle Toes, which is my favorite name ever, uh, he is at the Royal Air Force Museum in London. So we got a photo of Twinkle Toes. And, uh, yeah, they were the first transatlantic passengers, and they're so adorable. So, of course, uh, who am I to not have black cats in the museum <laughs> as a cat lover myself? We found two plush cats that look just like Twinkle Toes, and uh, so we're going to have them at our museum for children to play and learn about in a, in a fun way. And we're going to have a picture of Twinkle Toes in our exhibit panels. And so Twinkle Toes, these black cats, they had a little like handkerchief around their neck so we're currently trying to get a handkerchief that looks just like twinkle toes uh to go around their neck to have on display so we can set them apart as well we we i need to have twinkle toes stand out from uh, lucky jim <laughs> as my prize favorite uh and from that you know i think a lot of times with aviation stuff you get bogged down like oh this is the plane and this is specifications of this plane and this is how it was modified from world war one and that is interesting but that's not the entire story and that's not all that i want to share because everyone's interests are are quite varied and so when i saw the cats i just saw a huge fun like public programming idea so we're actually going to be partnering with local artist janet peters and I sent her pictures of Twinkle Toes. And we're going to be having a class where people are going to get to make their own little felt Twinkle Toes <laughs> to bring home with them. That's excellent, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's things like that that's really cool. And uh, they didn't just have these plush cats. They also, the story that we've heard from the Lester family is that they've also had a horseshoe on the Vickers Vimy plane as well, Alcock and Brown's plane. And uh, they had the horseshoe as good luck. Uh, Alcock had selected the 13th plane manufactured uh, from the Vickers. And, uh, and yeah, so they took a horseshoe from that. And where that original horseshoe is today, I don't know. But we're going to have a horseshoe from the Lester's firm on display. For good luck. And yeah. For good luck. <laughs> Now the other the other little piece of that I wanted to talk about, uh, you you made uh, the media locally here for this other kind of initiative to to promote this event. You you've partnered with a local brewery, Landwash Brewery, to yeah. to commemorate the flight as well. Yeah, my uh, board member John Rich, uh, he very much likes to verify that this was his idea. So <laughs> okay, well, thank you, John Rich. Thank you, John Rich. Uh, we, yeah, Landwash opened up uh, just in December uh, a few months ago, and... And they're right around the corner from you, aren't they? Yeah. Right, you could stumble there, really. <laughs> you might. <yeah. laughs> I just might. <laughs> uh, 
so we went to them about partnering and they couldn't have been kinder or uh, more enthusiastic about the idea. It was so great to sit down and meet with them and we told them about the history of the exhibit uh, and Chris Conway, who's one of the duo uh, for Landwash Brewery, he has a history degree, so he was all for it, and, and they're from St. John's, so uh, they, and we told him the story, Transatlantic, and he, within minutes, he had the perfect idea for a beer. So the beer is called Field of Light, named after our exhibit, and it's a transatlantic pale ale. And uh, we even went down and helped make the beer as well, which was very exciting. Uh, but to go with the transatlantic theme, the wheat is from PEI and the hops are from the UK. So it uh, it fits with that theme. And uh, they even have like our logo on the beer can as well. And they got the beer can label to match with our exhibit colors. And I, it's just so exciting, you know, as a small community museum, try to partner and work with as many different people as we can. And when Landwash opened up, we just had so many ideas of how to work together. And we're grateful that they're just as much interested in partnering with a local museum. And uh, so, yeah, we can't wait to have a sip of that pale ale on uh, Monday, May 13th for the first time. Yeah, so, so they're making about a thousand cans. Yep. And uh, and they'll be for sale at Lamwash Brewery. Uh, my family and myself just might buy two hundred of those cans. So <laughs> your father will be very delighted. <laughs> yes, <with this>. yeah. <laughs> There's going to be one that's never going to be open that I'm just going to like cherish yeah. for the rest you, of my well, life. Well, are you going to put one in the in the in your collections at at Admiralty House? Like, will you will you accession one and put it? Uh... We should. Chris dropped me off a demo of what one looks like, so I've been keeping that. Uh, next to an award our museum got this year, and I have both of them on a little label, a little stand by my desk, as prized <laughs> possessions of uh, successful. I, you know, it's I I like the programming that that you do at Admiralty House, and you're right, you you have this um, smaller community museum, but you guys do great stuff, and Thank and you. I like that you are open to kind of making it fun and making it accessible to the general public, finding interesting ways to bring the public in and mm-hmm. share that that history. You know, whether that's through beer or through Twinkle Toes <laughs> or whatever it is. Uh, yeah, I grew up in a family that uh, we spent a lot of time outside or, you know, trekking back and forth to St. John's. And growing up, I really didn't spend a lot of time in a museum. Uh, and my mom and dad, I don't think even 10 years ago that they'd ever think they spent would spend this much time in <laughs> museums but so i come from that kind of family where it's not your typical thing to go to and some people museums are are not inviting to them or they seem like dark places uh and it's not exciting and you may think like oh museums that's not my thing that's not what i'm into so when we do programs at Admiralty House, I'm always trying to think of different groups that are out there, different personalities, and what are different ways to get new people in through the doors. Uh, and so when I look at a theme like the transatlantic air race, I'm really looking at all the different aspects of that and being like, okay, what is something for kids? What's something that I would be interested in? And, and I go to my board members as well, being like, is this an event you would go to? Yeah. 
Uh, would you bring your kids to this? And, you know, it's all fine and dandy to have a, a great idea in your head and to just run with it. But you need to, the assessment of that and figuring out does the community want it is a really important step as well. So, uh, you know, I've only started working there since August 2017 and, and learned a lot since my time there. But we're always trying to trying new things and trying to get different groups through the door. And, you know, sometimes I still mention Admiralty House people and they say, oh, it must be top secret now because I've never heard of it. <laughs> yeah. And then I and I walk away and I cry all night. <laughs> but so then I after I cry for 12 hours, <laughs> then I think about then. how who is this person and how come they haven't heard of the museum and what can we do to get them through the doors and how are we not engaging them as a community member. Yeah, I think those are things that all community museums need to be thinking about. Um, if people want more information on the museum and the and the current exhibit, where can they go? We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all at Admiralty Museum. Uh, we also have a website, AdmiraltyMuseum.ca, and uh, they can even call a museum and chat with me themselves and my number is 7481124 uh, the exhibit opens on Monday May 13th and will be on display until August 31st uh, for the first few weeks we're going to be open Tuesday to Friday 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. but then once I get my lovely summer students it's going to be open seven days a and, week. You and you have a very uh, cool visiting uh, exhibit as part of this that you can pilot a, a plane yourself yes oh my god see the exhibit there's an exhibit within an exhibit. Uh, so the exhibit, the other exhibit is on loan from Ottawa and it's Ace Academy and it's interactive where you move your arms and you get to fly a sop with plane, which is what Hawker and Grieve flew. Yeah. So, so uh, very cool. So kids are, there's lots of stuff for kids to do and oh, I, yeah. I, it sounds very And there's going to be lots of fun kids programming and we have something fun in the works with Coffee Matters, a lo another local Mount Pearl company as well. So uh, always up for partnering and always up for something fun. Great. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much. You've been listening to the Living Heritage Podcast, a co-production of Heritage NL and CHMR Radio at Memorial University. You can find previous episodes on iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. We're on Twitter at HFNLCA. Do you have a question or a suggestion about an aspect of culture and heritage you want us to explore? Send us your mail and we'll do our best to answer it in an upcoming show. Email us at livingheritagepodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Lache Swing. Thanks for listening.